Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today, I talked to Dr. Rico Simonini. He's an accomplished cardiologist. In fact, he's my cardiologist. We talk about inflammation, cholesterol, and a host of other health concerns. He's a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so excited for this talk for so many reasons, not the least of which is I got an hour for free with my doctor. Find him at Eric Wonderland on Instagram. Doc Rico, thank hey. you for being here. Thank you, Ethan. Great to be here. I yeah. love the new digs. This yeah. is really awesome. We got fancy, huh? Connolly got fancy. Connolly, I love it. Kid from Long Island does great. That's right. That's like an age-old story, isn't it? A kid from Long Island does great. I feel like a lot of kids from Long Island do great. They do. They do. I, mean, I grew up in Brooklyn, which is like geographically, it's like you know the the western tip of Long Island. But when Brooklyn guys make it, it's usually like they get made, and then you know they're in the. <laughs> They're in, a, they're in a crime family, and, you know, it's kind of a different thing. And you read about them in the, in the newspaper, and they're walking around with that famous look, like, you know, holding their foot. Uh, right. But Kevin legit got made. I mean, he's like, he's up there in the Long Island Hall of Fame with, like, with Billy Joel and, 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 and Seinfeld and Mike Bossy. Although I don't think Mike Bossy was from there, but he made Long Island famous. Yeah, and Kevin didn't whack anybody that we know of. Not yet. Right. Not yet. This time. This time. <laughs> Give him time. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about health. I came and saw you not long ago, and we did a full workup, and there, there were some interesting things. Basically, when I first heard about inflammation, you know, my idea of what inflammation was was you stub your toe, it turns red, swells up a little bit, it's tender. I thought that's inflammation. Started hearing about inflammation caused by food, which I at first was like, okay, this is probably bullshit, but then... I heard more and more about it, so you got to quit all carbohydrates because they're causing inflammation or processed carbohydrates or whatever. So I, of course, did that. And then when I saw you, you actually tested the blood for inflammation, which I didn't know was possible. I thought it was more of one of these like holistic type of diet when I thought, you know, uh, complex carbohydrates caused inflammation and it was along the same things, but you can actually look at inflammation scientifically. What is it? Okay. That's a great question. First, I want to applaud you for transforming your body. Thank you. I, I think that's inspirational. I think everyone should know about it. You should actually tell everybody where you started and where you are now, because a lot of guys come to my office and they're like, you know, I've been like this for years. Or, or the worst is there are actors out there who make a living being the big guy. Yeah. Like a lot, I got a lot of guys who are like big mob guys in like every mob movie you see. And they figure, hey, I dropped 50 pounds, I'm out of work. I'm like, and that's not it. It's the attitude, not the weight. And they think it's too late to transform themselves. You have successfully transformed yourself. And yeah. that's, I applaud you. So now to get to your question, inflammation is like stubbing your toe. In a way, you're, you're correct. And in a way, life, 
is like a big toast stub. So from the time we're born to the time we die, we're being exposed to life. And life is, can be inflammatory. And our body basically reacts to the slings and arrows, as we say, or the injuries that life causes us. One of the most common things we know is wound healing. You cut yourself, there's a scar, it heals. So what you have initially, you have an injury. It triggers these proteins, which recruit cells. The cells produce more proteins, which produce cells to grow, recruit white cells, right? The white cells fight infection. But the white cells also help organize the, the tissue so to cause wound healing. And then you have the wound heals. And when you have situations where there's too much wound healing, you have what's called a scar or a keloid. And inflammation is the balance between between scar formation and scar breakdown, injury repair, injury repair. And we have proteins in our body, inflammatory proteins, which do exactly that. They respond to injury and they, and they cause repair of cells, growth of cells and growth of new tissues. And sometimes, depending on how, how you stimulate the system, you could actually you could tip the scale where there's too much injury because there's too many inflammatory factors. So, for example, smoking cigarettes, horrible, horrible habit. Why? Because cigarettes has tar, nicotine, carbon monoxide, all these things which damage you and is causing chronic injury to your lung tissue and when it gets into your bloodstream to your vascular tissue, the, the, the blood tissue. And that chronic injury leads to damage of the arteries, damage to the lungs. And so you see people wheezing late in life, have emphysema, where people develop hardening of the arteries. So that's always going on. Your body is always dealing with injury and repair. The way I look at it, uh, a good picture, is if you think about blood cells, your blood vessels, okay, inside your blood vessels is a lining of skin. Okay, the skin has a fancy name called endothelium. But just think of it as inner skin, okay? So if you took that inner skin in your blood vessels and put it all together, quilted it all together like a patchwork, it would be basically three football fields, three L.A. Coliseums. Now, if you're healthy, it's beautiful green, lush grass, lush blood vessel cells, protecting your body, making sure that if you have an injury, there's a clot and the clot gets broken down and you're healed. But if you start damaging it by either smoking uh, or, or doing bad things to your body like alcohol, drugs, eating foods which are inflammatory like saturated fats or high sugar, okay, uh, those simple sugars. Chronically, it's like, it's like taking that grass and spraying it. This way, over time, that beautiful lush green grass that, that it was these beautiful football fields, that skin inside your, your arteries, that inner skin becomes this yellow, hardened, you know, grass, like, like what's in like uh, upper Wisconsin in like January, you know, it's like, it looks really harsh and it gets hardened. And suddenly we have problems like high blood pressure, stiffened arteries, plaque formation, the stuff that eventually blocks arteries and things don't work as well. And the way that happens there happens in our joints, happens in the lines in our stomach, happens in the vessels in our brain. And that's inflammation. And all these, all these factors release proteins that we can measure. So everybody runs at a certain barometer. It's like I say, it's like your engine. If you're running your engine like in the red or, or, or running it, you know, where it should be. So people that have high inflammation are in the red and they have high levels of protein, which means that their arteries are going from those beautiful lush green grass to the brown wasteland a lot quicker because they're damaging. So this is what's happening from the day you're born to the day you die, it's these proteins, this balance, this yin and yang between healing and injury, healing and injury. And the more we damage ourselves, the more we harm ourselves, the more we're on the injury part. So that's kind of a the 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 the, encapt the five minute version of inflammation. Right. I mean that 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 is fantastic because I, I had no idea any of that. I, it was just a word that appeared kind of in in relation to diet not so long ago. From from what I can tell, as a professional amateur dieter, you know, I, I just had no way to contextualize it. But that makes perfect sense. And now, so you did mention refined sugars as one of the potential causes of inflammation, but you also mentioned smoking and and 
And then you just said it's a natural thing to have that. And I imagine that just using your body, throwing your body against stuff in exercise or physical activity or whatever it is, is going to cause a little bit of that. But are you an absolutist when it comes to like the certain foods? Because I think in terms of like how food is used as a fuel, and I understand like if you're putting the wrong fuel in, you know, different types of cars, like a diesel car requires a certain type of fuel. And if you're putting jet fuel in a diesel, it's going to break. But if you're using your body, can you get away with consuming some of those foods and not have it be detrimental? I'm talking about like absolutes. Are you a guy that says no one should ever eat refined sugar, period? Or is it useful in some situations? Well, I mean, you know, I, patients always ask me, I mean, doc, you take it all away from me. And, 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 and you don't want to be the bad guy. But uh, I mean, we, we talk about ideal. Ideally, we're going to limit the amount of sugars we have. And, and, and some general rules I tell people is uh, no more than 25 grams a day of sugar and your calories should be no more than 7% fat. And the fat should be unsaturated fat, not saturated fats, because those things tend to be more inflammatory, more damaging. And it's like this, when you're younger, your body's more forgiving, obviously, because you know it's two things. It's your age uh, and your genetics. There's some people that could eat whatever they want and they're, they're fine. In fact, there's a population of people in... Uh, northern Italy and southern France that have the gene, which uh, allows them to have cholesterols over 300 and never develop heart disease. Wow. You know, and that's a, that's a unique population. And there's probably other populations around the world which have that protection. Conversely, there's people in parts of the world, let's say in, uh, in India, who have at age 30 have cholesterols, which are high, triglycerides, which are high, and have multi-vessel blocked arteries, coronary disease in, in their 30s and 40s. So they're genetically uh, challenged. Okay, so so it starts with your genetics, and and it, and it starts with your and your environment. And sure, you know when you're 18, you know you're you're drinking, you know Red Bulls and eating, you know uh, th those those energy bars and doing what you got to do to get through your final exams or get through a rehearsal or get through what you're doing. But then as you get older, your body kind of reminds you, you know, that you can't do it anymore. And that's why we have some of these tests which kind of look at. Uh, inflammation and also look at, you know, for us, for me particularly as a cardiologist, I'm looking at how to, what the end, the end result is, how, to, how those inflammatory proteins and how that process leads to heart disease and more important leads to a heart attack. Right. Because that's the thing I, I, I worry about, you know, because even today with all our great medicine and everything we know, 300,000 people a year in the United States die of sudden cardiac death, which means that yesterday they were fine than tomorrow than the news, you know, and, and, and we heard lots of people here out here in LA in Beverly Hills and this community in the last month, they were shocked at 38 years old having a massive heart attack and dying and having three vessel coronary disease that was undiagnosed. So the thing is, we, we still are trying to find those people. And the best we can do is look at risk factors. So we always talk about cholesterol, right? So now we, we tell people, know your cholesterol, and that gives you an idea for risk. However, the sobering thing or the scary thing is that half the people who have heart attacks have normal cholesterol. Right. So normal cholesterol is good, but it doesn't really keep you out of the woods. And of these people who have sudden death, two-thirds of them, two out of three of them, if you did a stress test on them, on them a week before, they passed the stress test. Why? Because the artery is not more than 50% blocked. It's, 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 it's less than that, which means that they had a plaque, okay, that ruptured and suddenly went from being 40% to being 100% blocked. So who are those people? Those people obviously have high circulating inflammatory proteins because they're high inflammation because the plaque they have is very inflamed very injured and there's something about to happen. So we're trying to find ways to predict who are these people. So so actually the the inflammation test is maybe even more important, more relevant than necessarily cholesterol or, you know, like the stress test. So, so I don't want to say more important. I say they 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 work they're in tandem. These are tools that we use in tandem. So I always tell people three pieces of information I like to get on patients and is is your cholesterol, uh, the, in, the inflammatory panel I get, and also uh, something called a coronary calcium score, where we look at plaque inside your heart, and that's a quick snapshot of your heart with a CAT scan machine. It's basically the amount of radiation you would get if you were driving the convertible I just bought for like 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> with those three pieces of information, that kind of gives us an idea as to who is at risk. 
And in combining those three, we can have a better pr- prediction, okay, this person's high risk, this person's low risk. And, and for two things, one from a treatment standpoint and also from a modifying risk factors because, you know, if you hear that you have high inflammatory proteins and your cholesterol is slightly elevated, you may be motivated to change your lifestyle and, and diet. Most people hear, eh, cholesterol, you know, I'll work on that next week, next month. They, they kind of... You know, they, they, they kind of put that off. It's like taxes. They, they postponed as long as they have to, you know. But the problem is, you know, when it's time to pay, you know, the, it might be a heart attack. And right. you don't want to do that. Yeah. Now, now with the cholesterol and the specific genetics that allow for higher cholesterol, is that an available test? Like, can we test and go, like, am I one of these people who, who is allowed to have higher cholesterol? Yeah, that, so that's that's a great question. So so what we're we are now entering an era where uh, testing the genome is is actually getting more and more readily available. So you know we all have twenty three andme and ancestry.com, and we could say, oh my god, I'm part Ethiopian. Okay, cool. Right. Right. So, so 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 but uh, or me, I found I was part Greek, so now I break dishes every now and then. So <laughs> so we're learning about. Uh, our our genetics, and we can test for people who are at high risk for these for coronary disease and heart disease. It's a double-edged sword, though, because now you have this information, and 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 the thing is, just because you have the gene doesn't mean you're going to express the gene. So so you know so there I mean there are some examples like with breast cancer, people that have both genes for breast cancer is, uh, are high risk high risk, and you have people like you know, Angelique Jolie who who said, hey, you know what? Get them, let's Get, lop them ex- off. Exactly. Let's let let let's do the mastectomy. So 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 the, the, those are pretty, it's pretty good evidence. But going down the line, it's not always as clear. But it does give you an idea of somebody who may be more at risk. And and the question is, you know, I, I guess it also becomes now uh, an actuarial risk. So now if you're trying to insure somebody that has uh, a 23ME quote unquote that talks about heart disease. What does that do to them? You know, but I think knowledge is power. Knowing you're at risk is important. And the most simplest way we ask is, what's your family history? So if right. dad or mom had a heart attack, you know, th- then that tells you there's something going on. You know, and, and it's important to know that. It's a tool that's becoming useful. I think, like everything else, though, it has to be used wisely by the right doctor and the right, you know, understanding what it means, the implication, and and the and most importantly, you know, you want to have the knowledge help you in, in, in getting better health care and not alarm you and, and not to be used to instill fear. Because right. that's, that's the other thing. Because uh, uh, one, one of my mentors, when, when I received my, uh, I got my cap and gown, when I became a cardiologist at the American College, you're, 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 you're gowned, so to speak. It's like you're made, you know, they kiss you, they burn, they burn your name in fire. <laughs> anyway, something like that. But he said, I remember saying that, remember, we are physicians not car salesmen. We're not trying to sell people a true code. We're trying to give them good health care. So, so we don't use fear to sell people. We, we use knowledge to empower people. So I think that's important. But that's a great point you bring up about genetics. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. But I can see a very easy shift in my cholesterol. If I do like a really lazy version of the keto diet, which is easy and you're just eating tons of fat and low carb, you know, if I'm eating a lot of red meat and cheese and shit like that, my cholesterol goes up pretty quick. And then if I do like a what I would call a healthy version of keto where it's avocados and chicken thighs and vegetables, it'll go down still a little high. And what I'm doing right now, which is low fat, it's like Go, like I, my cholesterol truly couldn't be better. I'm like scared the next time I'm going to check, it's going to be too low. And they're going to say, you know, which I don't know if that's ever a thing, but I'm right at the bottom of where I'm supposed to be on all, on both of them. So that's, these are, it's an excellent thing you just brought up. First of all, the keto diet. So let me give you my take on the keto diet. I think a modified keto might be okay, but I think there's a lot of people out there they say keto, they're eating lots of fat. Okay, they're eating fats that they normally would not eat. So I've seen people suddenly drink pints of cream and put and put coffee in it. It's like, have some, have some coffee with your cream, you know, because, hey, it says I can have fat. And the rule is 7% of your calories should be fat, no more, and it should be unsaturated fat. So if you're going on a diet which, which suddenly says, hey, eat tons of fat that you normally wouldn't eat before, not a good idea. Now, if you're trying to drop a lot of weight, 
of course, if you weigh, you know, if, if you're like, uh, I don't want to mention names, but if you play gangster in many mob movies and you're trying to drop 100 pounds, of course, because you run a calorie restriction and carb restriction, you're going to see weight change. So, so it's so it can it, it could be a quote unquote necessary evil, but I think people shouldn't be adding fat because the diet says add fat. I think keep the fat count down. So the modified with low fat could be okay. And as you said, as you said, when you drop the fat, the cholesterol comes down. And the second thing you said is, can cholesterol be too low? Great question. And so medicine is interesting because there's a pendulum that swings back and forth, you know, and and, uh, and I always say there's nothing new under the sun. They just kind of rename it, reclassify it, you know. It's like, it's like uh, every filmmaker says there's 20 common themes in movies that get right. redone all the time, right? So same thing in medicine. Years ago in the 1850s, I think, or 60s, there was a guy named Verkhoff, and he coined the word atherosclerosis, and basically it meant inflammation of the arteries, and, and and back then they thought that was uh, arterial disease was a result of inflammation. Right. But then people said baloney because he was looking at people that had syphilis because way back then in the 1850s, syphilitic heart disease was very common and a very common cause of death in men. Surprise. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, and, and so they kind of walked off the idea thinking, well, he was just looking at a bunch of hearts with syphilis and that's not what it is, you know. And then uh, years later, somebody used to call uh, heart attacks they used to call them CAT, C-A-T, coronary artery thrombosis, because it was a clot in the heart. And then they said, no, that's not it, because we see people without clots in their heart having heart attacks, and they throw that theory away. And now we come back, you know, 21st century, and realize, oh, my God, yes, it is inflammation in the arteries. It happens chronically. And, yes, you have a plaque, which is really like a scar inside your artery that ruptures, and boom, you have a clot happening acutely and that's there is a thrombosis and that's why we use drugs which dissolve clots and that's why we give you blood thinners to prevent clots and now cholesterol okay there's an article in time magazine from 19 i guess 1980 i think there's a there's a there's two eggs in a pan on the cover and it says the myth of cholesterol how americans have been needlessly alarmed about cholesterol and that and that if you lower cholesterol you're going to cause depression and you're going to and you can become suicidal and there's all these ideas that lowering cholesterol was wrong and then we have all these studies which show that if you lower cholesterol you prevent heart attacks so when people say to me what's the side effect of lowering your cholesterol i said well, the side effect is you have less of a chance of having a stroke or a heart attack that's the side effect now, can it be too low? You know, now we have these new drugs out there. These, uh, um, it's an injection out there that it's a it's a antibody against the receptor for cholesterol for the bad cholesterol. And now we see bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterols, as low as thirty. And uh, and give give you an idea, you know, if it's over one sixty, it's abnormal. So LDL is the bad one. LDL is the bad one. Okay. HDL the good one. And then triglycerides. If people are still trying to figure out what to do with that. But yeah, so those those are the three numbers we get. Although. I always tell people there's the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, and then I, we also measure the ugly and the very ugly because not just LDL, there's something called VLDL, there's something called particle size, there's all these other cholesterols we can measure. Each independently could have a risk factor for heart disease. So we found that with these new drugs, you could drop your LDL down to 30 and even like undetectable. I have a patient whose LDL is like zero, we can't find it. And he's saying, I have no more LDL. <laughs> and he's like scared. What do I do with that? And I said, well, and, 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 and so far, that it doesn't seem to be anything that shows that having a, a very low LDL is harmful. In fact, they show that the lower the LDL, the lower your risk of having a heart attack. Oh, wow. So, that's, so, so then you have nothing to worry about. Now, another drug that's out there to talk about inflammation, which we're not talking, no one really discusses because the drug, this new drug is about $10,000 a dose, and that's a whole other talk show because we have great technology, but then when the drug comes out, like nine people could afford it. So, right. I mean, so what's the point? It's a drug that blocks inflammation. Wow. And so they found that giving this injection to people who've had heart disease, and so and it's, a, it's a monoclonal antibody, means it's, a, it's an antibody against the receptor where the inflammatory protein binds and affects. So it's like blocking the protein from causing damage, that if you take that drug, it lowers your risk of heart attack by another 20%. 
just as powerful as taking a statin, just as powerful as taking this new cholesterol drug, except not now it costs about $10,000 a dose. So the future is going to be, let's block inflammation right. and treat heart disease and let's lower cholesterol as much as possible. So this is all what's what's happening. But we think in probably 20 years, this, this uh, inflammation blocker will be readily available to everyone, right? Well, like my wife would never let me do that. She would just tell me to not eat fucking Pop-Tarts. You know? <laughs> well, well, you shouldn't eat Pop-Tarts. I mean, right. They're not as good as they used to be. But, it, but this is what, what you're saying to me. When I hear that, I hear you get a shot and you get to eat Pop-Tarts, which might not really be what you're trying to say. You know, I know you, you added in that it's for people who've had heart attacks to prevent them from having further heart attacks. But that's what it sounds like to me, like statins too. I know some people genetically are predisposed to higher cholesterol. So they take statins because kind of no matter what they do to their diet, their their cholesterol remains high. That's possible, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and anyone out there with a with a with a smartphone, there, there's an app they can go to. It could either be the ACC, American College of Cardiology, or there, there's an app for Know Your Risk, uh, or Framingham Risk, as in Framingham, Massachusetts. And it gives you you enter your numbers and it gives you your risk. And what we found is if you're if your five-year risk of having a heart attack based on your age, your cholesterol, your blood pressure, smoking, non-smoking, diabetes, non-diabetes, if your risk is more than 7.5% for five years, then we recommend you be on a statin because then we could actually prevent you from having a heart attack. And the earliest data for that actually came from Scotland. Like back when I was in med school, they did a study called... The, uh, the West of Scotland trial, where a bunch of Scottish people, they took this clavicle and, and it was basically, basically people take, eating Scottish diet, which is, you know, lamb and meat and potatoes and cheese and working in coal mines and dealing with the bad pollution from burning the coal. And they found that just giving clavicle, which is basically one or two molecules removed from red rice yeast, which, right. is, which is a natural statin, which is where they, how they discovered statins, that that lowered the risk of people having their first event, cardiac event, by 15 to 20%. So that's the first time we saw primary prevention. And all the other studies in cholesterol were secondary prevention, it means they had a heart attack, or we, they had known disease, and we gave them a statin drug. So now we're up to like, you know, the, 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 high, the third, fourth, fifth generation statins. I call them the gorilla statins because they're more powerful. And because they're more powerful, they have more of the side effects. And because more people are taking them, we're getting to see more of the side effects. And now we have the newer drugs too, the antibodies. So you're right, I th- but not 20 years, Ethan. I think between two and five years, you'll see people taking antibody-driven, genetic-driven therapy. The question is how affordable it's going to be. To your point with the gorilla statins, I mean, look, in America, I know there are certain groups of people who are going to be forced to eat more of what I would think of as unhealthy food just because of financial reasons. Because the cheaper, I generally find the cheaper the food is, the more unhealthy it is. It's full of preservatives and all kinds of other garbage. So there for sure is going to be a group of people that are stuck consuming that, right? But we're in Los Angeles. Pretty much anyone can find fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, year-round, lean meat, or even plant-based protein sources. And and so do you see a lot of people taking these gorilla statins just so that they can continue to have a poor diet? Like, is that part of it? You said a couple of things which, which are generate some thoughts. Number one, the public health crisis we have of it's cheaper to eat poorly than it is to eat well. And I think that's something that, that the government should get involved in because rather than spending billions in trying to treat disease, you could spend less to try to promulgate good diet, you know, and, and actually and we're seeing some of that because McDonald's is now taking, you know, the fats and stuff out of their food and they're coming up with different options. Every time I see that sign, billions served, I'm thinking that's all the heart attacks they've caused. You know, they really, it's, it's the number one risk factor in America is probably the, the golden arches when you think about that. Right. And, uh, and it started out here in San Bernardino not in, the, in, the, in the 50s. As far as um, food being available in L.A., I think some parts of L.A., I think you're right. I think there's some parts of the Los Angeles area where it's still kind of tough to get fresh fruits and get healthy food. And, and people still depend on you know, getting the one dollar breakfast treat or the, or the or the cheaper food or eating. You know, look at look at a loaf of bread, a loaf of uh, plain old. We called it American bread, sliced bread. It's got it's got processed flour. It's got tons of sugar. 
but it's cheap, right? You get a, you get a, get a, get it for a buck at the ninety nine cent store, you know. And then when, when you're when you're struggling with with food and feeding the family, unfortunately, becomes a carbohydrate based diet. So, so I think people still need to to do that. As far as people taking statins, I, mean, I think people have you know high cholesterol, high risk factors. They're told watch your diet, but take these pills. So taking the statins protect them somewhat against their diet and lifestyle. Um, but still, it doesn't mean they're excused from that. You know, I, I, I think um, even smokers who take statins are somewhat protected. You know, but, but once again, if they didn't smoke, they'd be a lot more protected. Uh, and then it's a, it becomes an issue of, you know, which, which risk factor has weighs more in terms of developing heart disease. And, and we know smoking weighs the, the greatest. And then, and then other things, when, when you have a diet, a poor diet, remember, there's a thing called glucose intolerance where you can't metabolize sugar. And then as you get older, that leads to something called prediabetes or something called metabolic syndrome where people are overweight and their cholesterols and triglycerides are abnormal and their sugars are borderline. And that leads to getting being diabetic. And diabetes is a very strong risk factor for heart disease. Diabetes basically ages you. So if you're diabetic, it makes you 10 years older. Uh, I had a professor once say to me, you know, it makes, it turns young men into old men in terms of risk factors for heart disease. It turns women into men because women have lower risk at, a low, at the same age as men, but it puts them at the same risk as men when they, with having diabetes. So poor diet will wind up getting you in terms of developing diabetes. But cluster, but the statins do protect you. You're right. So we, we love, I, I always love my patients when they first come in to lose some weight. Make right. a lifestyle change, you know, especially if they're still at that borderline, if they haven't had a heart attack, or even if they're uh, borderline hypertensive. I say, listen, you know, go on a good diet, and we could drop your blood pressure, you know. And uh, I think what I brought you, I bring you, I did, uh huh. So I, so I brought you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A list of, a list of free interventions, how to drop your blood pressure. And oh, basically, wow. basically, just diet, exercise could save you taking a pill. You know, and I always tell people to do that before we turn to these medications. So, so it's, it's, it's a combination, you know, and, and, and I guess I tell my people, if they're going to eat what they're going to eat, if they're going to smoke, which I don't want them to, at least if they're taking their meds, they're somewhat protected. Yeah, it does feel to me somewhat like there's a, a cycle of 
you know, we had at some point a real famine in America with the Depression. And not long after that, we started subsidizing foods like beef and soy and corn. And, and the actual prices dropped real low. So now I don't think we're capable of another famine because calories are so cheap here in America. Like, you know, as we said, you can go get a high caloric meal for breakfast for a dollar. But then the side effects to eating this way are... Other complications like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, pre-diabetes, diabetes, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, that kind of thing. And so now we have the medical industry coming in and and creating fix-alls basically with gorilla statins and, and these things to block inflammation and stuff. And so it's like a cyclical thing of like how else can we make money off of the human body? You know, you go, you take your car into the shop to get the tires rotated and suddenly you need a new motor, that kind of thing. But so I had goals. My initial goals had nothing to do with health because I, I was very unhealthy. I just wanted to lose weight. So I started on this thing of losing weight. And then as I got closer and closer to whatever my goal is, I started looking at my blood like, hey, can I be responsible for this? Like, can I nudge this in the right direction? When I get my blood checked and my cholesterol is elevated because I'm eating a really uh, lazy version of keto, can I fix that? And, and yes, I can, but I, I don't know that that's true for everyone. I don't know that cholesterol is necessarily, you know, is it is true that somebody could be genetically predisposed to high cholesterol. That's true, right? Of course, yeah. There, there, there's definitely, we, uh, we call it uh, dyslipidemia, right, where you, where you have uh, hereditary forms of high cholesterol where different components of your of your lipids and cholesterols are abnormal. But those are the people who need to be on medications and need to be aggressive about taking medications and being on top of their numbers. You, you said something, Ethan, which, which kind of struck a note. There's plenty of calories around and, and we won't have a famine. But there's a difference between um, being fed calories and, and, and being nourished. I think there's a lot of malnutrition that goes on in America um, even in California, uh, a state of almost 40 million people, you have calories, but you're missing essential vitamins and nutrients, and you're missing essential amino acids. And and I think a lot of it becomes is, is from poverty or from and, and and all people could afford are certain meals. And so I think that's what needs to be enforced or, or or educated, especially with the kids. It's having balanced meals, not just calories. You're right. You, you, could, you could have lots of calories and you're not going to quote unquote starve, but you will be missing essential nutrients, especially for kids who are growing, forming bones and, and, uh, and, 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 and their health and their mental health and, and, and forming neurons and all these things. You want to have proper vitamins and minerals. And I think there's a lot of people who are still malnourished, even though they may be fed and, 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 you know, that's a... I think that's important to, to kind of point out. Um, once right, right, you can be obese and malnourished correct, at the same time. Correct. Those two things could be true. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I mean, once upon a time, you know, there, there was a, there was there was a disease called scurvy. You know, sailors uh, going across the sea wouldn't have enough fresh fruit. They have plenty of bread, plenty of wine, and they they'd eat, but they had vitamin C deficiency, and and, and so they had scurvy. They started sort of bleeding from their gums and getting bruised, and then they carried. You know, the British would carry buckets of limes. That's why they called them limeys back in the day, right? Or rickets from lack of vitamin D, okay? And then people have brittle bones. And you see that in a lot of kids that have a lot of calories but don't get enough vitamin D, either from not enough sunlight or not enough products with vitamin D. So I, I, And then we have a new type of, um, of uh, malnutrition. It, it happens in, in uh, um, moms making their kids vegan without paying attention to what they're giving them. I mean, I'm not, not, I'm not going out after vegans. I think vegan diet is a great intervention for people, uh, especially if you're having a lot of problems with, with cholesterol and fat and heart disease and, and being overweight. That's great. But when you, when, when you make your kid vegan, you got to make sure you're paying attention to the food groups and, and the nutrition and minerals. And I think a lot of, a lot of uh, moms don't pay attention to that or, or they don't do enough research on that and the, and the kids may wind up missing certain important minerals. So calories and nutrition don't always coincide. Right. I read about a guy who lost weight eating junk food at an AM, PM, but 
he was an athlete and as he lost weight, he had no energy and he felt like shit and, and he became malnourished. He was able to lose weight doing this. So yes, I, I, I understand the nutritional requirements, but also to your point, there's a whole host of ancillary problems and, and disease that you're looking at due to nutrition, undernutrition or overnutrition in certain directions. You're saying at the very beginning, most of it can be corrected with diet. Yeah, yeah. I, I always use diet, exercise, lifestyle as the first intervention. You know, if, so, if we're talking about primary prevention. Now, if you've come in because you've had a heart attack or we just resuscitated you or we just put a stent in you, then you're in another category. You're, not, you're, not, you're no longer in the primary prevention. You're now in secondary prevention. And then maybe you have a stent in you or maybe you have damage to your heart muscle or maybe you have advanced plaque. Then we have to be more aggressive and then medications come into play. But still, you couple that with, hey, you know what? You got to lose weight. You got to quit smoking. You got to you know, lower the stress. You know, figure out ways. I mean, I tell patients to do yoga. I tell patients to meditate. I tell them to do Pilates, whatever they can to de-stress, you know. And, and uh, some people are in high-stress jobs, you know, and you tell them think about doing something different or think about another way to handle your job or handle what's going on. One guy divorced his wife. I said, that's a little, a little too much, but, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I didn't. I, life. I didn't say that. I didn't. I didn't write that down. But yeah. anyway. light cholesterol is plaque. If you start to, can you get rid of that without drugs? That's the billion-dollar question. Everyone says, you know, when you have plaque, can you get rid of it? Okay. And uh, so right now, so the story is this: for up until about a year ago, thought was once you have plaque, it's kind of there. Now there's two kinds of plaque: there's hard plaque and soft plaque. So what normally happens is you have your you have cholesterol or or the LDL the bad cholesterol floating around, and it sticks to a receptor and it gets engulfed by a white blood cell because it notices it as being hey this is a bad thing your white cells go around engulfing things that don't belong, and that white cell engulfs the the LDL cholesterol and it becomes a foam cell and it releases all these factors. Now, when I was in my laboratory as a student, I used to do this. I used to have these little little petri dishes with with with, with white cells, and I would inoculate them with with LDL, and uh, and, we, and you'd run a coil to run an electric current so you can oxidize the LDL, and, you, and, and then you measure, and the inflammatory proteins go off the scale because they're they're trying to react to this this invader, this LDL cholesterol that's that's, that's inflammatory. It's like spraying. Uh, it's, it's like taking a. a, a a sand and sandblasting your arteries is causing damage, and the white cells try to engulf them and 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 and, and incorporate them and, and get and clear them. But eventually, the debris of this battle—it's really what it is—kind um, of lean is kind of sticks along the walls of the arteries, and sometimes you have this quote-unquote soft plaque. It's just a cholesterol plaque. They're just fluffy little bone cells gathering along there, and have maybe some blood clots incorporated. In it. Now, soft plaque is reversible. The soft plaque is also dangerous because the soft plaque could rupture and lead to a big blood clot that can give you a heart attack. And then sometimes the soft plaque gets covered with like a hard shell, like a lipid, like a like a lipid core. We call it it's inside the inside. It's soft on the inside, hard on the outside. And those are also dangerous because they, the the shell could rupture and then the lipid, the, the liquid pulls out and causes causes inflammation in the blood clot. When you take statins, it kind of takes soft plaque and turns it to hard plaque, makes it stabilized. Or if you do diet and exercise and lower your cholesterol, it also can help the soft plaque reduce. But once it becomes hard plaque, it's kind of hard to reduce the hard plaque. It's kind of like, um, it's like, it's like imagine like you have a plumbing in your house and it's got that, 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 that crud that's along the side. It doesn't really go away. The mineral deposits. The mineral deposits. It's kind of hard to get rid of it. Recently, um, uh, I was one of 10 scientists that did a, did a study looking at using the injectable drug, the antibody drug, and looking at plaque in the neck, okay, the carotid artery that brings blood to the brain, except for some politicians who don't get blood to their brain, but that's, <laughs> that's another show. And we saw that by giving this, this injectable drug, uh, that binds to the the uh, the LDL receptor, the bad cholesterol receptor, that we actually reduced plaque size in the neck. So now the question is, could, is this really a, a quote-unquote reversibility of plaque? So we're going to tease out the data, see maybe because some of these plaques were mixed, hard and soft, so maybe got rid of the soft, and that's why it's smaller. But it's exciting. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, when we're getting to reversing plaque, 
we're actually getting to really reversing aging because this the process of recognizing what doesn't belong and destroying it and, and reorganizing it, that's really the injury repair that happens with aging too, like when your joints and everything as, as we get older. And, and, and the, the uh, fidelity of recreating normal tissue, kind of we lose that as we get older. Okay, right. and that's why you know the, the joints don't work as well and things don't work as well. That's why our risk for cancer goes up. But also, you know, in in recreating and repairing the inside of the artery, that our ability of that changes. The more advanced our disease, the more risk factors, and the older we get. So reversing plaque totally. What's exciting is this study kind of shows that maybe we could we could do some of it. Can we do all of it? Probably not. Who knows? I could be wrong. I might be wrong. I probably am wrong. Probably 20 years from now, somebody say, ha, that guy said not. Look at this. Right. Which is great. So never, there are no absolutes in science. However, what we can do is prevent the progression or arrest the progression. Now, we always say if you take 190-year-olds, chances are they're all going to have atherosclerosis and plaque. You know, if you take you know, 150-year-olds, not as many. So we're all going to get there getting plaque. So the, so the question is, how do we slow that down? And that's really the, 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 the mechanisms by which plaque forms and progresses is actually also similar to the aging process because it's about repairing what's abnormal. And all those signaling mechanisms uh, that happen in the arteries are also involved in the aging and, and repairing mutations and repairing. One more thing I'll add, when I was, in my, when I was doing my research in school, I worked in a cancer lab. In a cancer lab, I was studying atherosclerosis and heart disease. And the reason why I wound up there is because I came across inflammation. And I said, you know what? Here we have a plaque that grows and grows until it gets to a certain point and ruptures. And it propagates. It moves, right? We, we, have, we have it spreading. So what, what behaves like that? Tumors do. So I was at the University of Michigan. And I said, who's the smartest tumor inflammation guy on campus? I found a guy named Robert Streeter. I said, listen, you know, um, I have this crazy idea. You know, I said, thinking the way plaques grow is similar to how tumors grow. And he laughed. He goes, what? He goes, here. He pulls out a paper. He goes, I talked about this five years ago. And people kind of like shook their head at it and said, ah. And so that was my research in his cancer lab because he had every way to look at every protein and inflammation. And I basically made my, made my bones, quote unquote, describing the process of, this is a word called neovascularization because tumors grow by making blood supplies so they can feed off it. If you look inside a plaque, they have little blood supplies so they can grow. So all the proteins that make tumors grow are also the proteins that make plaque grow. So there's a similar process. And then there's... And these proteins are what you call inflammation. Inflammatory proteins. And then there's a group of proteins which are supposed to stop them. And this is what he was looking at and trying to control lung cancer growth, and fibrosis in the lung. And I said, well, shouldn't these molecules work in the heart? Because nature has this, invented this whole you know, cascade of proteins that are on both sides of the seesaw trying to work on inflammation repair. And I described all those proteins in atherosclerosis. And, and like I said, nothing new under the sun. It was just, just had to shine the light and say, aha, here it is. And now, 20 years later, we're making drugs which are, which affect those very same proteins that we've talked about in the lab. So the way it's kind of cool when I see these drugs, oh, wow, I remember looking at that 20-odd years ago. But uh, So that's kind of fun. And that drug could potentially have some help or, or be of some use in, in uh, offsetting cancer. It's similar technology. All the, all the new drugs in cancer biology are all monoclonal antibodies against different receptors in the cancer cell that prevents it from growing or in the proteins which allow blood vessels to grow. So all that technology that went into um, cancer therapy is now being shifted into looking at atherosclerosis. And also, go back even further, you know, when I was, when I was in, my, uh, in school in New York, uh, the biggest ep- epidemic was HIV. I was working at Bellevue Hospital where one out, of, one out of three of my patients were HIV positive or AIDS. And we were seeing it and we were learning about this condition, how to treat it and how it behaved and learning about how, to, how viruses behave. 
And I remember the chief of medicine at, at, at NYU, uh, uh, Saul Farber was his name. And I remember he was this kind of gray-haired guy and he wore the long white coat. And during rounds, he'd rock back and forth, and we'd rock with him so he could not miss a word, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was great. It was far rounds, we call it. And he would say, he said, young men, you're all lucky because when I was your age, pneumonia was the epidemic. And we learned about pneumonia and bacteria and how bacteria kill people and how we, then we talked about antibiotics, and that was the breakthrough. You have been blessed with a new epidemic that's gonna teach you something about the body and the immune system that you didn't know before. And what you learn from this, you're gonna learn to apply it to other things. It's gonna change the way you treat people and change medicine. And, and what we learned about viruses and biology and, and immunology from, from HIV is now applied in many disease systems. So he was right. right. So na- nature sometimes puts something in our, in, in, in our, in our way that this seems like a horrible thing, an obstacle, but yet in trying to overcome the obstacle, we learn more. It's like we look over the horizon and learn something more about the way things work, and this is what this is. And now we have antibody technology manipulating the, the immune system, which is what affects inflammation and what affects healing, whether it's in cancer and viruses or in heart disease. Right. And whether it's to fix a problem we've created ourselves or a problem that's naturally occurring in some people, it's doing great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or we just close all the McDonald's. I could, I could stop. Right. <laughs> I mean, yes, right. If we could do that first. <laughs> or, or have them contribute to the... Uh, there should be a tax on, 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 on cholesterol. If you serve high cholesterol food, you should pay a tax. We have, we, have, we have a gas tax. We have a tobacco tax. There should be a Big Mac tax, you know, and, and so that this way you could pay into some kind of fund to bring healthy food to kids and teach them. I think we're doing something with this hour of power and teaching kids how to exercise and, yeah. and, and more kids are more aware of, of foods and fewer kids are drinking Coca-Cola and sodas and things like that. So, Just as an aside, as far as McDonald's goes, I, um, I've been on a diet a- ever since my youngest kids were born and for basically their whole lives – we would see McDonald's and I would be say, that's not an option. That's not food. That's poison. And I just told them this from such a young age. And at one point when they were like five and six, I think we were skiing and everything was packed. You know how it gets at ski places where it's like two hour lines to, to get out, uh, something to eat. And so I left and I was just looking around the town for food. And the only thing that was relatively empty was a McDonald's. And I pulled in and they were like, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> and I said, we got to eat. I got to feed you. You guys are going to turn into gremlins any minute if I don't get you fed. And they cried. <laughs> yeah. Do the same rules and all the same information apply to women as well as men? Because I feel like we hear a lot about heart disease in men and we don't always hear this discussed as women. So d- does everything apply? Is it all the same for men and women? They do apply, I think, and you just said something very, very important, because initially all the studies were done in men, right? Uh, I was at the uh, the VA in San Francisco when I was in my training, and we did VA studies, and the VA studies were great because vets, vets don't die, they just fade away, you know, and, and, and you could always find them because you, tra- you track them down by their VA number. And for some reason, vets are the most compliant patients because they love showing up to their appointments, more just to hang out with each other and smoke cigarettes, whether it's through their trach or whatever, and share a couple of you know, swigs. I gotta go for my appointment now. I'll be right back and hold my cigarette. Hey doc, I'm good. Yeah. So so the, so all these great studies that we did, which change how we treat medicine, were done mostly in men. And most, most of it were actually uh, white men. So somebody finally had the wherewithal to say, you know, doing a study in a bunch of white men doesn't really apply to all of America, namely women, okay? And thank goodness, a lot of pioneers uh, around America, including here in L.A., like Dr. Dr. Noel Berries-Mares was here at Cedars-Sinai, said, hey, you know what? We need to look at women. We need to take all those studies we did uh, back, you know, back in the day, back in the day, I could say that now, right, uh, uh, and apply it to women and find out that, hey, you know what? Everything does apply to women. The manifestations are maybe slightly different for heart disease with women because uh, manifestations of coronary disease is slightly different. A lot of women get misdiagnosed uh, for for years. There was an epidemic of women presenting to emergency rooms with 
with coronary disease, and they were told, "Oh, you have anxiety. Oh, you have anxiety. Oh, you're just, you know, panicking," and 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 they got sent home to have heart attacks. So somebody finally realized, "Hey, you know what? We need to." focus on women as well and understand that heart disease affects men and women. Now, I remember there used to be an ad uh, uh, because the number one killer in America in men back in the 50s and 60s was, was heart disease, not women. But then there used to be an ad for a, cig- a cigarette called Virginia Slim. So if they want to sue me, fine, they're out there, who knows. And they'd say, you come a long way, baby, because women finally start smoking. And then Around 1975 or so in the mid-70s, heart disease became the number one killer of women as well. And so I said, great, thank you, Virginia Slims. They've come a long way, baby. So you've got, you've got women too. So we need to look at both men and women, understand this, how this applies to both men and women. That it's, it's the number one disease of men and women. Uh, and it doesn't discriminate in terms of, in terms of uh, race. Uh, and we have to be very vigilant of that. And... You, Correctly so. A lot, a lot of studies were in white men, which, you know, I always marvel at that. Uh, in fact, recently there's a study out there that you'll see was in the paper because now, you know, there's medical journals reporting it and then there's TMZ reporting it, which was going to wonder, you know, or, or USA Today or whatever. Um, the aspirin study, a lot of people ask, hey, my God, there's, there's, there's published this aspirin study saying aspirin doesn't really work anymore. You shouldn't be taking aspirin. And, um, and, and, and I have two problems with the aspirin study. Um, they, they did thousands and thousands of patients, which is great, but mostly white men. So I said, great. So if, I guess if you're a white man and you take aspirin every day, um, it, it probably does more harm than good. But what about women? Or what about if you're not white? Well, you know, what if you're African-American? What if you're Asian? You know, what if you're, what if you're, what if you're Hispanic? I mean, this so so suddenly we've, we've neglected all these groups, and 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 to me, when I'm looking at clinical trials, I'm always looking at the subgroup: how many women in the group, how uh, how many people who are non-white in the group, because you can't just extrapolate, but you got so, so you have to be able to identify how things work. Medications work differently um, in in different ethnic groups. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, take a class, although at the time didn't seem lucky. It was tough in clinical pharmacology. So I was, at, I was at UC San Francisco and they sat in this class and we learned about pharmacology and the genetics of pharmacology. It's another thing that few people are aware of. You could do a 23andMe on how you metabolize drugs. So if I give an aspirin to somebody from Japan versus somebody from Kenya versus somebody from Mexico versus somebody from Arkansas or Michigan, the aspirin is going to work differently in each of those people because they metabolize it differently. And same thing with blood pressure medications. Um, and so we have to be aware of that, that medications don't, they don't work the same way. Some are more potent, some are not as potent. And even the genetics of how we metabolize, you know, common drugs are, are, are different as well. And so we have to look at men versus women. And when we look at these studies, we have to say, did they look at it in women as well? Because it may be it works, and maybe the dose might be different, and maybe the manifestation is different. So that's a very, very important point. But it is the number one killer in women. And we have to be pay attention when a woman comes in complaining of anything, you know, from the from the chin down to the belly button. Any kind of pain could be heart pain. So we got to really be aware of that. So that's an excellent point you brought up. Thank you, Paige. I want to say also, you're a full time doctor, but you have also made a movie. I did. Let's talk about that for a minute. Oh my goodness! Thank you so much. So I I. Uh, Years ago, I did a play at the Actors Studio called Frank and Ava, and it was written by a playwright named Willard Manis, who somehow I became his muse. Um, he was doing a play before that about, about the Berlin Wall, and, and his lead character was a Greek spy who spoke Russian and Greek and was the double agent. He hired, a, I guess, a Greek actor to play the role, and somewhere during the rehearsal, they didn't get along. And he says to a friend of his from the studio, I want to replace my lead, but who's going to learn this part in three weeks? He goes... <laughs> My cardiologist, he goes, what? Yeah, my cardiologist is an actor, and he's great. We've learned stuff like that. So sure enough, he cast me in this role. And they became, you know, this Greek spy, and I learned to speak Russian, and it was good. And suddenly started writing plays for me. So he wrote this play called Frank and Ava about Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner, about that 
crazy romance between the two of them and how it was Frank at the bottom of his career in 1949 when he was washed up. The Bobby Soxers had enough of him. He was scandalizing the paper and he was just being tossed aside. And he wanted two things. He wanted Ava Gardner and he wanted to get his career back. And the career was getting the role in From Here to Eternity, which nobody gave him a shot to do. And the play was a great hit. We did it here in Hollywood for six months. And I said, this would make a great film. So it took me four years shooting on a 15 different weekends and scattered parts of the world, including Rome and Palm Springs. And over 100 actors, a lot of my friends came in and said, hey, we want to be part of it. Guys like, you know, Lucas Koss came in to be in it. Harry Dean Stanton was his last film. Uh, and I remember when you were making this and it would be like, the weekend after next, we're going to be here shooting. Exactly. And it was like this amazing thing that was like every couple of months you'd do We were shooting. Scene. We were yeah. just popping scenes out. And, and Eric Roberts came on board. And it was just, I mean, it was magical. The people were saying, hey, I want to be in your movie. I'm like, okay, yeah, we're shooting in about a month. I, I'll get you. I'll write you in. And uh, Richard Portnow. Uh, and even Dionne Warwick, she sang a solo for me on camera with this microphone and this fog. And, 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 and she did it in one take because when they asked her to do a second take, she goes, hey, I'm born on Frank's birthday and I'm just one take, baby. <laughs> and, she, and she was awesome. So, so the movie came together, Frank and Ava, uh, it went went to a whole bunch of festivals, and now it's on Amazon Prime. It's out there. It came out a couple of months ago, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a great story because it talks about a, a, an iconic character, but at, at the at, at a terrible time of his life when he was down and out, and it's about a comeback and it's about romance. So uh, I had a lot of fun doing it, uh, uh, um, and it, for me, it's kind of personally was a. Uh, uh, special because as a kid, I met Frank Sinatra with my dad. My dad hung out with guys like that, guys with no necks and pinky rings, you know, and said, huh, who are you? You know, but, uh, uh, and Frank, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my father says, uh, is my kid, uh, this is Frank. And Frank looks and goes, where do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a doctor. Good. Whatever you do, don't do what your old man does. And he put, and he put a C note in my pocket. So I always remember that. That's amazing. So, uh, but yeah, and it was a it's a it's a great story, and uh, and I made them. I started making the movie after my father passed away, and uh, and and my dad was kind of like the inspiration, the spine, because people said to me, "How do you play an iconic character?" You know, he's Frank Sinatra for crying out loud. I said, "Well, my dad was five nine, blue eyes, hung out with mob guys, smoked cigarettes, drank whiskey, and chased women." If he could sing, he'd be Sinatra. You know? really? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so that was the spine of it. And then Impossible Love, who hasn't had that, that one person that, that makes you like, you know, you could be in Paris at the Eiffel Tower and thinking, I'm going to jump if she doesn't call me. So, so that, was, that was her. He had that one woman that he couldn't have, that he had to have, that he, that he felt the ache in his bones for her. And, and some of the things he did, I mean, he tried to commit suicide. He walked off movie sets. He was insane for her. And to me, that was a great story to tell. And, 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 and the one-liner for this is in Ava, in breaking him, she saved him. Because after her, he, his acting became, the pain was, in, was palpable and his acting and his singing. And suddenly he wasn't a skinny kid being cute in front of the girls. He was a man that was broken. And he was showing, he had actually now really loved and lost. And you saw that. So that's the story, this transformation of Sinatra. And yeah, I, I, it was blessed. Everybody came to help and it was great to have it. And uh, it's out there now on Amazon Prime. It's awesome. Go watch it on Amazon Prime. Thanks. Great being here, buddy. Doc, thank you so much. We receive a lot of questions at AmericanGlutton.net and we hope to get to all of them and answer them as succinctly as possible. Joshua wrote in, can you help with tips for me or anybody? Can you provide a blueprint for one to follow or share the key points in the education you found along this journey? Yes, sir, Joshua, I sure can. And thank you for the question. The biggest shift that I noticed recently and the biggest educational point that I noticed recently was a TED Talk by Mike Isriatel called The Scientific Landscape of Healthy Eating. I would recommend that anybody watch that. And so I would start there. There are lots of great diet books out there. Um, Mike Isratel also wrote a diet book called The Renaissance Diet 2.0. Lane Norton wrote a diet book called Fat Loss for Life. 
these books go over kind of the principles of thermogenesis, which is energy consumption. And if you start to think about the body in terms of being a machine, these principles apply. Now, these principles don't negate anything that you could have in moral terms, like if you are against GMOs or against eating animals, you can still apply these principles. These are like kind of fundamental things that I found educationally really helpful. The idea that we should understand how our bodies utilize proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, and then also the micronutrients and fiber and and all of that stuff, and then make our, our, our eating program or base our eating program off of that, I've found to be really useful. So, you know, I, I would educate myself that way and use things that use that utilize a preponderance of the evidence out there. That can be hard to find. Most diets come along with studies that talk about certain things, and, um, and so it can be hard to navigate that. But there are certain fundamental principles in science that have not really changed or been discovered to have been changed much as far as the body is a machine that requires fuel and it uses fuel. And and these are in general terms. Obviously, there can be hormone imbalances. There can be uh, autoimmune diseases. There can be a lot of factors that can alter these things and alter the way the body uses this. But, but barring those, like in in general terms and in, in statistical terms, most bodies operate in a similar fashion with energy consumption. And you can kind of base any diet. I've found that all diets work on these on these terms. So if you have a preference for, you know, eating chocolate cake and you don't necessarily have a need for a lot of protein, then you can base your diet on eating chocolate cake if that's what you prefer. If you prefer fat to carbohydrates or you find that you feel better when you're eating high fat versus high carbohydrates, then you can base your diet off of that. But there are guys out there who don't deny preference but use science to kind of point you in the right direction of what to do based on your preferences. And I would uh, recommend reading either of those guys or watching a YouTube talk that one of those guys does because I find them to be pretty smart and neither one of them is necessarily leaning toward telling you what your preferences should be. They're kind of leaving the door open in that sense. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.